Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a podcast all about creating visibility, paths for growth, and opportunity for entrepreneurs. We focus on those entrepreneurs who are statistically underrepresented in the startup ecosystem. Your hosts are Zena Island, president of X Plus PR, a media relations agency, angel investor Aurelia Flores, managing member of Athena Digital Media Group, a digital marketing agency, and angel investor Christina Francis, president of Esteem Logic, an information technology consulting and training firm. In each episode, you will meet a new startup founder, hear about their company and where they are now. We then focus on one key challenge facing that entrepreneur, a challenge that is common among startups. Each episode also features a guest expert to weigh in on the challenge. Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded. Welcome to another episode of Get Found, Get Funded. This is your co-host, Aurelia Flores. For many people, money and credit are topics that are extremely hard to talk about. But as you all know, we talk about it a lot on the show. Today, we're going to dive in with our guest, Marla Blow. Marla Blow is the founder and CEO of FS Card, a startup credit card company that successfully sold to a strategic acquirer in December of 2018. Ms. Blow was part of the implementation team to stand up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and ultimately served as the Assistant Director for Card and Payment Markets, where she shaped the CFPB's regulatory priorities in the consumer credit card markets. So we'll be talking a little bit about like how that influenced what you're doing sure. now. Prior sure. to joining the CFPB, Marla spent seven years in a variety of functions at Capital One in the credit card business. Marla is a member of the U.S. chapter of YPO and previously served on the board of directors of Factor Trust, a provider of underbanked consumer data analytics and risk scoring solutions. Ms. Lowe also joined the board of directors of Care.com, the world's largest online marketplace for finding and managing family care. She holds an MBA from Stanford University, yay Stanford, yay. <laughs> and an undergraduate degree from Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Marla, we are delighted to have you on the show and to talk about Thank this topic. You. Thank you, Aurelia. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk a little bit about your professional journey and background and how it brought you to create this company and do something really challenging, right? An unsecured yeah. credit card focused on the subprime community. Yep. I, I still sometimes get people doing a double take when I tell them what I what I used to do and say, I run a little credit card company that I started, and they're like, is that, that a thing? You can go start a credit card company? <laughs> Who has ever heard of that? Um, but I had spent about eight years at Capital One. I'd been in the credit card business, then helped start a regulatory agency, as you just mentioned, the regulated credit card business. And I kept interacting with people at, in my role at the CFPB and learning over and over again that there was a substantial withdrawal from the subprime credit space, places where my team at Capital One used to issue plenty of credit prior to the financial crisis, prior to the advent of the CFPB. All of those were used as explanations for why they weren't offering credit into that market. And knowing what that likely meant, because that, that demand for credit hadn't gone away. It just meant that they, weren't, that they weren't able to use things like a traditional credit card, probably trading down to things like payday loans, pawn shops, auto title, other kinds of alternative expensive credit products that cost 300, 400% mm -hmm. interest rates, and mm -hmm. if you calculate an annual rate on that. And I just kept thinking that's A, a massive opportunity in the market, because I know how attractive these credit cards can be, and then also that it was a disservice to this customer base, that they mm -hmm. were having to solve their day-to-day -day liquidity needs in a much more expensive, much less productive way. And I found myself saying, someone needs to do something about this. And I guess the advice I'd say is, if you find yourself thinking someone needs to do something about this, that's an opportunity. <laughs> and so I ultimately ended up jumping on it, and, and off I went. To, I left the CFPB in January of 2014 and started FS Card in, in January of 2014. Tell us about the withdrawal from that space. Mm -hmm. So you said that there had been folks that were in that space offering credit, maybe credit cards. Even maybe Capital One was doing that yeah. prior to 2008 or right. so. exactly. And Roughly. then what was the, if you know, kind of off the top of your head, broad numbers, what did it look like, the pullback and the withdrawal from that space? Mm -hmm. what, 
What were those percentages like? So, so I, I guess the way to think about it is about 50% of the credit capacity that had been previously available to subprime consumers came out of that market, right? So it wow. basically got cut in half. Yeah, this, was, this was dramatic. Obviously, some of it was a function of the financial crisis sure. where people were charged off, they, which meant ultimately that the losses were recognized and that credit was written off. But also, credit, li- credit lines were closed down, and credit just stopped being offered, period. Mm-hmm. So it was a very dramatic dislocation in this space. And uh, to clear up when the financial crisis happened, are we referring to 2008? We're talking the, 2008. 2008 during exactly. that time. Yeah, that's okay. right. And th- so I guess the thing that I would add is, and then there was no recovery, right? So it wasn't right. just that it, it pulled out, but, but now we're talking six, seven, eight years later, mm-hmm. And nothing, that, that capacity never really came back. And that was what created the opportunity, right? So we were past the real dip in mm-hmm. that crisis, and we still didn't see that credit capacity coming back in for those customers. Thank you. Well, let's talk about what you mean when you say the subprime market, because mm-hmm. I think that sounds, that can sound really derogatory, but right. it's a lot of people. And, it is. And certainly, hey, just, you know, in full transparency, I've been there, right? Absolutely. Like in, in, and absolutely. When and you're, I, you know, under, underbanked, underserved, under, you know, overextended on credit, whatever that might look like, right. you know, during the course of our lifetimes, like that can be a lot of people at a lot of different times in their lives. Exactly. Yeah. And there are, there are plenty of people that treat that word subprime, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, and that's something that they should just sort of stay away from, right? Mm-hmm. Like hold my nose and, and look away and <laughs> pretend that's not happening. And uh, and there's also no one kind of walking around in general saying like, well, I'm subprime, right? So, but it, what it means in this case is people that have had challenges with credit that may have been overextended, oftentimes there's been some kind of life event, a divorce and major illness, a job loss, someone leaving the household, right? Grad Those school. are the kinds of, right? <laughs> Any number of things can lead to challenges with meeting one's obligations. Mm -hmm. And that can land someone in a, think of it as a equivalent credit score of kind of 600, 600, 620 and below, Mm -hmm. where it gets harder and harder and harder to gain access to traditional credit. And in some of those cases, and the bet that we were making is that this is a customer that really just needs a chance, right? A chance to use a traditional instrument the regular way, the way that the broad swath of America uses and takes for granted every single day. And given an opportunity, these are folks that have learned the hard way in many cases what it means not to have that access and will value it differently. And so the bet we made was that, that we wanted to be that, that first chance to get them back into the mainstream. And I would guess that in some cases it also includes immigrant communities, right? So people who have not yes. had an the experience. The new to credit, right, new to credit. To credit in, in, the, in the industry, you call that thin file, right, people that don't mm-hmm. have a long credit history or any credit history. Absolutely. And again, they need that first product. And you wind up in that loop where you don't have any credit, so you can't get any credit. Right. And it's bewildering, right, for immigrant communities, that, that co- for immigrants coming to the U.S., to be told that your money, I get that you have money, but you actually need credit, and they're like, what do you even mean? And so getting that first trade line, or it shows up in the credit bureaus, et cetera, was another place where we took that plunge with those customers, absolutely. What about returning citizens? Um, mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. is it offered for them? Is so that's another population that we were interested in, in attacking. We hadn't gone down that path before, okay. we, before we ended up selling. But it's definitely an area that was of interest to me, and it's an opportunity that I think was really interesting. And I, I think that's one that, that might be worth looking at now. Right? I, think there, I feel like there's a real groundswell of people thinking about reentry and getting people a chance when they're, when they're coming back in. I think there's tons of opportunity there, but we didn't tackle that. So let's talk a little bit about how the card worked and how you found your customers and yeah. a little bit about the business model. And maybe explain to some of our listeners, too, kind of how it contrasts with other options that people were using, mm-hmm. right? Because, like, you, you mentioned payday loans, pawn shops, right. um, auto credit loans, where people are often given loans at an incredibly high interest rate from an right. annual perspective. And they're just trying to kind of get ahead, and it may actually end up being getting people further and further behind. Right. So we tried to create parity, right? And what I mean by parity is I just want this customer... We just wanted this customer to have the exact same experience that that all of us take for granted in the in the broad you know sort of middle of the country, 
middle part of the credit spectrum in the country. Mm-hmm. What I mean is to have access to credit when you need it on an on-demand basis. So we present a credit card, we expect it to work, right? We have, and then you have the ability to make the payments when the payment is due. You can pay in full, you can make the minimum payment, you can pay any amount in between, carry a balance, pay it down, reuse it, all of the, all of the dimensions and dynamics of traditional credit. Whereas what's happening with these customers is they're using cash-based credit, which means going into a payday loan store or a pawn shop with some valuables of yours, or to my mind, probably worst of all, bringing your car title in somewhere to get like $300, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of getting money, on an, getting money on an urgent basis, on a cash basis, and paying for it on a fee basis is the way that those things become incredibly expensive. And like you alluded to, that clock starts running on you and it's running really, really fast. And those fees are stacking up massively. So what we created is a traditional interest rate. You pay for what you borrow. When you repay it, it, we stop charging you interest on it. There's a fee to have the card, which is a standard part of the credit card business. And otherwise, you don't incur this kind of, this sort of astronomical fee calculation that you really have a hard time keeping up with. So we go through the credit bureaus, the traditional credit bureaus, the alternative credit bureaus, and got out some some incremental data, alternative data of our own, to run the analytics on these customers and look for what we believe is an inflection point in their credit journey. So something that leads us to believe that although they've been challenged in the past, and we know that going in, if there's credit at all, what do we believe now? And how do we look for signs that they have bottomed and are now on their way back up? So all of our customers were pre-selected by us. Mm. We did not have a portal that you could come in and say, hey, I have challenged credit, let me get this card. It was invitations. We sent out mail, good old fashioned paper mail that we all think of as kind of cluttering our mailboxes and, and is clutter around the house. But we were targeting a customer that isn't getting that mail, that they don't see a credit card offer two or three a week sometimes that are, that are coming to lots of people. And we pre-screened them, and when they matched that criteria, they came back in um, with the approval code from the piece of mail, and we were able to approve almost 80% of those customers after they get that, that piece of mail. So it was a lot of work on our part upfront ahead of time to run those analytics, to build our own credit model, identify who we wanted, and invite them to come apply. Mm-hmm. That's how we found our customers. So let's talk a little bit about the business model. So obviously you had background in this business yeah. area, you, you know, both on the regulatory side and on just kind of the running of the credit card side of things, and you saw this opportunity. And then you decided, okay, I'm going to go start a credit card. Right. Tell us a little bit more about that process <laughs> and how you brought it's people aboard. A, it's such a small sentence and such an insane undertaking. Um, so a couple things. In order to issue a traditional credit card, Visa or MasterCard branded, you have to have a bank. So I can't just incorporate and then go start issuing Visa cards. A bank Only banks can do that in this country. So we had to find a bank partner. So the very first thing I did was went out to talk to bank after bank after bank after bank, looking for someone that was willing to take a plunge in this part of the market. Second piece is a credit card requires someone to issue the plastic, someone to send out statements, collect all the payments, answer the phones, screen all the transactions, et cetera, all of the back office and servicing functions, which we were not going to build out and do ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we went out to find a service partner that would essentially perform all of the credit card servicing activities in a box, right, and and kind Mm -hmm. of do that. And that was the second pursuit of, you know, I tried to do, I did those two things in parallel. And that's kind of the setup to now be able to say, okay, now let's issue the first card. So all of that infrastructure and those partnerships have to be built before this could even be tested. And were these um, some of the banks you already had relationships with when you went in there? In general, yeah. Okay. In general, it was banks that I had relationships by virtue of my time at the CFPB. So I got to know a lot of the banking space. Was it challenging to find a Absolutely. bank? Absolutely. Okay. It was massively challenging, mostly, again, because a, the reason this opportunity exists is that banks really are not out there clamoring to find right. people with challenged credit to come and, and join their, you know, and be a bank customer of theirs. So the bank that backs this particular credit card, um, how did, how, what 
how did you convince them? Mm -hmm. You know, what made mm -hmm. them decide to take this risk? We worked with a bank called Republic Bank and Trust. They actually have done a lot of work in the tax space. They had a partnership with H&R Block in the past, and they used to issue people their tax refunds, and they still are active in this space, actually. And so they were comfortable with people that are using the earned income tax credit and other kinds of of kind of tax advance type customers. And those are adjacent customers to the customers we were serving with this product. And so for them, this didn't feel like something that they don't want to touch or like it's the third rail. They understood, they understood the importance of doing something for this population. And they also, I think, were very comfortable with my background having been in this space and having regulated this space. I think mm -hmm. they felt comfortable that we were gonna do this in as pristine a way as, as possible. And that was really comforting for them as well. So you pitch FS card over 300 times. I've heard some of your pitches. <laughs> I've also... <laughs> I feel like everyone has. <laughs> I've also heard you speak at Her Impact um, about your journey. And yeah. it actually was very... Um, I just I felt very encouraged oh, walking away, listening to your um, your journey and your speech to, and I think a lot of other the ladies who were at her impact they felt the exact same way. Just Thank like you. you know, there is a rainbow at the end. Yes. <laughs> it, it can be done. That's right. It can it happen. Can so you pitched three hundred times, you raised millions of dollars, and successfully sold your company. What are the three lessons learned that you can offer our listeners? Wow, distill it down to three. <laughs> So I guess you the you know, first, you and <laughs> first and <laughs> foremost is to be able to just shore up and be as resilient as you can mm. every single step of the way. So it's, I think probably when you heard me speak, I used the, I, I talked about um, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yes. And uh, another way of describing that same thing is in general, a boxing match, or, or any match for that matter, doesn't end until you don't get yourself back up, right? So get knocked down seven times, get up eight times. All the same, some of those cliches that, that people speak to really are true and they really are real and they very much are a part of the entrepreneurial journey. There is not a company around that some founder somewhere didn't take body shot after body shot after body shot to build it. That's always part That's of the journey. True. If you talk to any entrepreneur, and ask them about their great success, they might tell you, you know, some flowery story. Ask them about the number of times they got kicked, and they'll say, like, sit down, right, and, right. Let, and let's talk, because that's a part of it. So, so that resilience, that ability to take, to roll with those punches and be able to keep going is, I think, the thing that's, that makes the difference. Um, number two is I cannot emphasize enough the importance of a network. My, the banking partner that we just talked about was a function of the network that I had built. The service partner that we used ended up being someone that was a friend of a friend. The capital that we raised was ultimately a function of my former boss from 20 years ago before I went to business school to come in and invest in us. All of the kind of friends and family rounds prior to the, the major capital infusions into the business is all directly people making bets on me. All of that is a function of the relationships that I have. I would not have been able to do any of it. Also, probably for the first 12 people that we hired, they were all essentially either directly closely connected with me or one degree removed from me. All of that is because of having spent 15 to 20 years in this industry and being able to bring all of those resources, all of that experience, and all of those relationships to bear on it. Would have been impossible without it. And those 12 people, they all, did they have experience in the financial uh, world? For the most part. Okay. Yeah, in okay. general. I, they were, I hired a tech person that didn't, you know, needed, we needed a tech piece to be built. Um, we had some of the finance people came from other spaces, but in general, this was a finance space. Yeah. Finance you have team. one more, number three, networking. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Networking, resilience. And then I think for me, it was, it was about the mission. Mm -hmm. This was something that mm -hmm. I really believed in and really passionately felt like there's an opportunity to make a difference and changing the experience of a population that is near and dear to my heart. So I think as we were talking about earlier, referring to people as subprime might sound pejorative to some. It is not pejorative to me. 
it is important to me that those customers get treated with dignity, with respect, and with an opportunity to, to succeed in using their financial products and in all other aspects of their lives. And we do a disservice to populations by not allowing them to have a seat at the table. So for me, offering a credit card, which is, which is not a breakthrough product, right? We know what credit cards are. Um, we use some novel approaches, we built some interesting technologies around it, but in the end, it's a traditional instrument, and being able to create the day-to-day -day sameness, right, just the mundane sameness for this customer that so often is relegated to the side and required to jump through all kinds of hoops to solve their daily problems, is just not okay to me, right? And mm -hmm. I, you know, this is my family, right? This mm -hmm. is people that when I go home for Thanksgiving, we sit down and talk about the bad car loans that they have. Mm -hmm. Their problematic mortgages that they need help getting out of, the you know, so the collections agency that won't leave them alone. I know who they are, mm -hmm. and I love those people, and I want them to have this kind of opportunity. And let's talk a little bit about the interest rate on this card, so people can understand why the the rate on this particular card com card compared to, you know, something that is like you said is extravagantly high. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah. They, <clears throat> This card, in general, credit card interest rates probably in the neighborhood of 12 to 13%. That's on average across the board in the United States. This card, the interest rate is in the high 20s, so 25 to 29%. So it's roughly double, a little bit more, roughly double what the rate is on a traditional card. And that risk is, the risk is what is the driver of that much higher rate. But paying that rate compared to paying the fees associated with some of the alternative products is an order of magnitude difference. It's a factor of, of you know, one-tenth the price of right. something like a, a payday loan or, or what's going on in pawn and, and auto title. In auto title, where you're risking the one asset you might still have, which is your car, um, it's, it's sort of off the charts in, in terms of the cost versus the benefit that you're getting. So that was, we priced it, though, to be able to cover all of our expenses, all of our risks, and be able to provide the returns on capital that we needed to while creating a product that we think was effective for this customer. And the, testi the testimonies that came out of this, I'm sure you heard them. Um, what were some that stick to you that mm. you can recall? Yeah, so certainly a few things that we heard, right? One of them was around the way that the product communicated with the customers. So we built a chat bot that we used to enable our customers to make their payments on time and to recognize and reward them when they did so. So we have this, this SMS platform, meaning it's, it's agnostic as to whether you have a Android, iPhone, whether you're using our app or not. Even if you had an old style feature clamshell phone, we can still SMS you and tell you your payment's due in five days, your payment's due in two days, oh, right? Wow. Thank you for making your payment. Hey, your payment was due yesterday. And being able to do that real-time communicating really made a big difference I'm for sure a lot did. of these customers. Yeah. I'm sure that particular, like everybody else is, they're extremely busy. Exactly. Overworked, you know, right. underpaid, and, you know, and have trying, a plan. Yeah. And, and that little nudge makes, makes it possible for them to be successful. And so there's, I think in general, there's a point of view that credit card companies prefer their customers not to pay and prefer their customers to carry balance and, and maybe pay fees, et cetera. For us, we're not worried about our customers using the product. If they get credit, they are using it. It's much more about keeping them out of delinquency mm -hmm. so that we don't have to go through a collections activity right. so that we can be successful with them. And our incentives were aligned in that way. And our chatbot enabled that. So there were people that, that would text in all kinds of things back to the chatbot. And it's, you know, it was artificial intelligence enabled. So ultimately, it gets smarter on being able to respond. So it could talk back. I mean, it was, it was actually really fun. It was a cool thing to be able to do. Wow. Yeah. That sounds great. So resilience, yes. being able to take the punches. Yes. Also, kind of using your network, having building and having your network, and then being able to Absolutely. kind of lean on that network when you needed it, and doing something you really loved and just kind of right. was meaningful to you. Exactly. Um, and I too have, you know, very close loved ones that that I feel like it's just super important for us to talk about money and credit and all exactly. the things that we don't get. It's the last cool. thing that, that people will not talk about, right? And now, I mean, Taboo. sex has become completely normalized. Right. It's, it's everywhere. You can talk about that. Like, it used to be the thing that people won't talk about, but now it's money, yeah. especially mm -hmm. women. Yeah. Right. Women do not talk about money. That needs to change. 
Yeah, I so agree with you. I mean, like money is one of the most important things for us to talk about because right. it's how we exchange value. It's exactly. how we think about things. And there needs to be taking away the, the shame around all of those things exactly. that people think are shameful. Demystify and just, it and, mm-hmm. and also create community around it because yeah. that that sense of failure then starts to isolate, right? And yeah. then if you start talking to people and realizing how common some of the experiences sure. that are out there, it would really make people, I think, feel a lot more kinship and camaraderie. And not that, they, you know, that they're not alone out there and trying to solve some of the problems they're trying to solve. Right, and that there's nothing wrong with, you know, finding yourself in a place that is unusual and it's not exactly. fun. And okay, great. How can I reach out and, and get help? And there's a way out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of demystifying shame, mm-hmm. what do you think you did that looking back, you're like, oh, I wish I would have done that differently. Or <laughs> so many things. <laughs> um, I made every mistake that entrepreneurs make. One of them is hiring people. Hi- hiring people is probably the hardest thing to do. And the first, like I said, the first 10, 12 people, people I more or less knew. So those are, that's easier. But once it starts to get a little bit bigger and hiring people that I didn't personally know, figuring out, hiring is not that bad you know, in terms of just making the decision. But if the person's not working, you cannot keep them around. Mm-hmm. That is a that destroys the company and it will rot the business from the inside out. And I was slow on doing that. I was reluctant to do it just because finding people is so much work, such a small team, so every gap mattered. I really struggled to hold that line and when that line wasn't being met, to just make the decision and rip off the Band-Aid and go and, and find the next person. Um, I really struggled with that. That was definitely one of the things I, I wish I had done differently. Um, another is all of the upfront infrastructure that I talked about earlier took us about almost a year and a half, headed toward two years, to build all of that. We burned through a lot of capital upfront doing that. That's the most expensive capital that you will ever give out and take in. And we, we were, I was single-minded in my focus on building a credit card business. And I didn't do anything to demonstrate the other pieces of that that we could have done prior to having the infrastructure in place. So for example, we could have marketed and demonstrated that we know how to find these customers. Mm. Maybe marketed that, hey, we have a credit card that's coming soon, would you like to be on our wait list? That's something that I see tech companies doing and they show, like, I've got a wait list of 20,000 people that want this product. Here's how we found them. Here's how much it cost us to get them to click through and join the wait list and share their email address with us. Those are little clues that you can use to build some kind of demonstrated track record. When you're going out to pitch to be able to show that, hey, I don't have a card yet, but I do have a marketing machine and here's how the marketing machine works. I didn't do any of that. I did not try any tricks or wrapping myself in any buzzwords, we just set out to build a credit card business. And I think in retrospect, I probably would have been well served by taking some of those additional steps. Um, yeah, I'm here, I, we survived and, and lived to tell the tale, but it, was a, it, it made things very stressful and it made it, um, it made it harder to, because I continue to tell the same story about what we're going to do versus having anything to demonstrate or anything to anything concrete or any metrics to talk about. That's hard. You know what I find so interesting to hear you talk about this, um, and I'm not going to mention the name of the company, but I did some work, and I'll, I'll tell you about it later, but I did some PR work for pretty much, a, he's probably a billionaire, a millionaire, and he started his, um, he started a bank. He started it here in Washington, D.C., okay. locally. He had all the backings. I remember because I was so involved in every step of the advertising and the PR and the publicity and then while he was building it out. And it, it, it wasn't successful at oh. the end of the day. So, um, and listening to you, if, you know, if, and, and he has other businesses, but it just doesn't sound as easy as you think it is. Oh, it's not. Right. It is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Anything, no matter what it is that you're doing. Financial services is hard because it's so heavily regulated mm-hmm. and so capital intensive. But it's always, it's always hard, right? And it mm-hmm. always feels precarious. Exactly. And, exact, and he, now he started his during the time, like right before 
2008 before oh. everything bottomed out. So Ouch. that was the other yes, timing. So timing. So your timing was great. His right. was probably not on his side. Yep. Yep. That's a hard one. Circumstances outside your control mm -hmm. right, can take you out too. Anything can take you out. <laughs> and, True. I, and I just think it's so important for us to say again, like, are there things you could do better? Sure. And you can still succeed without being perfect. Absolutely. And you're it's everyone, perfect is not even part yeah. of the is not part of the lexicon. Absolutely, like right? So every founder needs to know what they can concentrate mm -hmm. on and what they can do well and what they can do better and you know, how they can kind of share that information. That's why we're here. Right? Absolutely to right. To get people exactly. to um, know more about that. So, okay. So you built this company, you built this team. There were some things that you did awesome. There's some things you wish you might've done a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Did you sell the company at the time you expected? What was your exit strategy kind of going in? And then what led you to decide, okay, now's the right time to exit? Yeah. So we ended up getting about 100,000 cards out into the market, a little bit more. Wow built about a $50 million portfolio and started to be able to have all those metrics that I was talking about. How much does it cost us to acquire? How's it count perform? What's our risk levels? How many of these ultimately do we need to get to scale? And we were, we were able to go out and now raise capital with all, with a functioning business in our hands. And that made a, that was a very different ballgame. So I'd say raising the capital from the, from the moment of it being, Marla's dream to actually being a product in someone's, in, in customers' hands, it's a night and day difference. It makes it a lot better and a lot different kind of conversation. In the course of going out to raise that capital, we had an inbound inquiry that someone was offering to buy the company, didn't want to make a minority investment, but would be comfortable buying the whole thing if we were willing to have a change of control. And we were out looking for a minority investor to take some, to put some more capital into the business and own a piece of it, not to sell it all. But that ended up being an incredibly compelling opportunity because it did a couple of things. It put our customers in a position where they were going to be able to grow their own credit access much more rapidly in the hands of a bigger business. Mm -hmm. So that was thing number one. And then thing number two is from a profitability perspective, the cost of capital for this industry incumbent is meaningfully lower than ours. So it's, it was a much more attractive portfolio for him in some respects than it was for us, just because our cost of capital was astronomical sure. as it is for, for any startup. And so, the economics of that deal made a lot of sense from that perspective. That ultimately was the driving force behind selling it. We, the plan had been to get it to a few hundred million, so we were still a decent ways away from where we were trying to get to. And that was more like the scale that we needed for it to be profitable on its own. And we could have gone out and, and continued to pass that, you know, pass that opportunity up and look for the capital to get us to that couple hundred million. Um, but occasionally there's an opportunity that, that you just can't quite resist. And so we took it a little bit faster, I think, than I, than I would have been targeting. You sound very dispassionate when you're talking about how you made the decision to do it. From an economic perspective, it made sense. It was an economic decision, absolutely. Was there any emotional fallout from that? Certainly. It felt a little bit like, I, so my son is, is almost eight, so I don't know what this is going to be like, but it's what I imagine it'll be like when he leaves home, right? That there will be this sense of, I'm excited for that next chapter, both for him and, and you know, for us. Um, but I will also, I miss it, right? And I miss sure. that, you know, it, it feels like, you know, good luck out there, right? <laughs> kind of a, kind of a leaving the nest thing. And it's a change in my identity, right? So that was, yeah. I, I put my heart and soul, there's, I've, I've said to people, and I might've said this when you heard me talking, there's almost no boundary between me and the company. If the company's mm -hmm. doing well, I was on a high. If the company's doing badly, I was at the depths. Mm -hmm. It was my life. And so, and so it requires a little bit of recasting myself, answering the question of what do I do, right? Who am I? Is, a, is, is I now still hesitate a little bit because I still haven't quite gotten used to it yet. It's still very new. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, there definitely was an emotional kind of goodbye for me on, on that transaction. You sure. know what I find interesting? We had Jewel Burke Solomon on the show mm, from Park mm -hmm. Figa, but oh, maybe about a month or so ago. Okay. And she said the exact same oh, thing. Oh, really? Like she said, I woke up and I remember it was gone and I was like, what do I do? Right. You know, it was very hard. Right. She wasn't ready to sell either. Mm -hmm. um, but 
for you know economically economics yeah economics holds sway that's right and so you know how do you just finally say you know what i have to do this i have to let go mm-hmm. and um because there are so there are other people out there who may not make that decision to let it go so right. when what, you know, to, can you offer any advice when to just finally let go besides economics? Because people put so much emotion mm-hmm. into their businesses and they just just don't want to you know, right. walk away from it. It's very difficult to come up with any specific parameters around that decision. Mm-hmm. And it's individual every single time. Okay. It is always, though, informed by how the business has been capitalized. So if you've taken someone else's money, those people have a say <laughs> in, what you're, in, in the decision making. And one of the things I've been been toying with and, and thinking about really is the importance of capital and how capital works, how capital informs what exists and what doesn't based on what they decide to fund. And getting returning that capital is the is a critical decision point for, for all entrepreneurs that have taken someone else's money. Hmm. So I think for people that really imagine wanting to have a long-term business of their own avoiding taking someone else's capital is a big mm-hmm. enabler of that. So if you want a, co- a company that's going to be your family business for generations and you one day think your children are going to work in it, you probably are going to struggle with someone that's constantly looking over your shoulder and saying, hey, how about you grow a little faster? Hey, look, somebody wants to buy the company. Those are things that outside capital really heavily value, and that that drives a lot of decision-making as well. So that is a critical consideration, I would say, for people that are thinking about how to reconcile when and if they sell their businesses. And just to make sure that our listeners know, we're talking about venture-backable capital, right? So, like, yes. for example, we've had a um, guest on the show, Jenny Casson, who helps people raise money from a number of different places, Sources. and usually friends and family individuals and not necessarily accredited investors, whereas in the venture-backable space, we're looking at companies who are going to scale quickly, who are going to be very big dollars when they sell, and we look at an you know exit event within five to eight years. Right. But you could raise money from outside investors, but you would structure it very differently right. than we do in and the that, angel and VC space. And that's prob- I think that's a, an important point you're making. We talk so much about capital and venture capital and technology venture capital in particular, right? It feels Mm -hmm. like that's, it's so high profile right now. Who's raised a series A? How big was it? Et cetera. And there's a huge world that doesn't fit into that parameter, into those parameters at all. And I remember reading a statistic that 94% of all businesses never take a single dollar of outside capital from anyone at any time. And so this, there's the 6% that we are all massively over-steering over, over on yeah, and over-focused on. That's right. Um, but there is other kinds of capital, much more patient capital. Right. Capital that might be happy to be along for the ride and maybe receive dividends, right, or, right. or some, something else. But in general, the common theme among, among, among all kinds of capital is they do want it back. It's not a gift. It's not At a grant. It is not charity or philanthropy. Unless that's your, unless you're doing something social or or, or philanthropic, um, and so that that concern still remains, right? Getting that capital back is always a consideration. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So in 2019, you won the EY Mid Atlantic Emerging Company Entrepreneur of the Year Award for 2018. Mm-hmm. You won it in 2019, but it was for 2018, and you were also listed as one of Fast Company's most creative people in business. And when we think of creativity, we don't often think of finance and bank- banking, right? right. We don't, it's not necessarily two things you would normally say. Put oh, together, yeah, okay. right. But what you did with FS Card really was creative and helping people that are often rejected from certain financial Correct. markets and so forth. Correct. Thank you. What did the award mean to you? And what do you think were some of your most creative moments <laughs> in this business? So... The reward, the awards are always fantastic. It's really, it feels good to be recognized. It feels good to, for all of the work that goes into it and all of the sleepless nights and all of the stress to have led to something that generates that kind of attention. Felt great. It was, it was a fantastic high, both of those. And I think the, you know, the real, the real takeaway from it is 
to have the to have the act the opportunity to be recognized in that way is is a nice kind of you know sprinkles on top of a of a Sunday, sure. um, but being able to build the company and see the results of it and see that for myself was the real you know, is, is the real kind of um, meat of the matter, and that was kind of what was most important to me. Right, I'm mm -hmm. not sure if I'm answering your question well, but but yeah, no, but I was know. just curious. Like, was creativity something that you felt like you did you feel like you were being super creative? Yeah, we found ways to inject creativity into it, and that was mm -hmm. that was definitely some of the stuff that was the most fun. So one of the things we did with our chat bot was we created this 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 test where we identified consumers in our portfolio and offered and sent them text messages that said, hey, successful credit users make, can make more than one payment per month. And if you'd like to make a payment now, you just you know, insert your, put in your, your one or mm. type back one, et cetera, and they would make more than one payment in a month prompted by us. Mm. And we found that we could actually build a, build a little algorithm that identified when those customers were most likely to have a little bit of extra liquidity send them that message at that moment, they were more likely to do it. Then they would make their second payment when the payment was actually due. And in general, their aggregate payments were higher than what they were paying on just the one single payment. So those are things that, that's really fun. It's great for the consumer. It demonstrates our ability to deploy the technology in the way that we, that we have, you know, had built it and intended. And it was ultimately a, a fantastic tool for being able to get better credit and better credit performance out of those customers. And that was really cool. And to me, that was, that was something that was important because I'm a big believer that the way that financial education and financial literacy is going to be effective is by being able to do things like that. It's, no, it's not continuing to preach to people about having a budget and living below your means and you know those are those are things that people know no one needs to be told that you shouldn't eat and order fries right but we all manage to find ways to gain some weight right and uh and it's the same thing with our budgets right we know we're not supposed to spend less than we make and yet we are overextended in lots of respects and so figuring out ways that you can actually capitalize on what we know about behavioral economics and how people make actual decisions when are those moments when they're most receptive? And how do we get them to do the exact thing that you want them to do to be successful? Um, that, I think, is the real promise. And that's where financial literacy can be an incredible tool. And from my data geek mind, I'm like, ooh, data that you yes, can gather from exactly. kind of seeing what messages exactly. at what points in time work. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. So, Marla, you were feature, featured in April 2018 Vanity Fair 26 Women of Color Diversifying Entrepreneurship. What a powerful and iconic photo that was shared so many times on Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, it was everywhere, Instagram, of successful black women business owners. What was the photo shoot like and emotion and what emotions did it bring to you, if any? Wow. That was that was also so we were talking about the awards. That was a definite peak experience. Mm. Just from a professional perspective, being in that room, meeting the other women in the photo, it was it was completely glam. I am a huge nerd, so for me to get to go to Soho in New York City to an actual real photography awesome. shoot. <laughs> was something that I probably would have never thought I would get an opportunity to do. And it was like being given a giant glass of water, right? When you've been walk walking through a forced march through the desert, right? It was gratifying. It was sort of, um, it, it really just made it feel like you're not alone. That camaraderie, that sense of community, that, that validation, right? Mm -hmm. That we've all had some similar experiences and all kept going through those experiences and that it is not always just, you know, me being the only black woman in every room that I'm in. Right. That there are all these other people out there and we're, and we're collectively changing things just a little bit in each of our own tiny little worlds. And so to bring us all together and be able to do that was was truly something that I doubt I'll ever forget in my life. It was it was huge for me. Did you know some of the women of the shoot already? Like you already few. had relationships I knew, with. I okay. knew one or two, and I knew about one or two okay. of them that I had never met before. So the opportunity to get to meet them 
in person. I, I was kind of like a, a groupie, right? It's, it's, yeah, I've heard celebrities talk right. about meeting other celebrities and they're just as excited to meet other, you know, and that's exactly how I felt. And then there were a few people that had heard of me and mm-hmm. they were happy to meet me in person and had been reading me about me and following my story. And again, that sense of, of just recognition, right? Somebody saying, right. I see you. And it's important to know that I see you and I'm watching you and I'm, and I'm happy to, to know that you're out there. Prior, that is what that brought home. Prior to the shoot, did you have any press or coverage about what you were doing? Some, not a ton, right? It was, it was mostly just we made a few PR announcements when we raised capital. I think we had to file and some people mm-hmm. would pick that up. Um, I have had a little bit of coverage just because I was previously a regulator and people are kind of interested in the, the regulator starts a business. Never mind the fact that I'd been in the business before I ever became a regulator anyway, but, but people were still intrigued by that story. But in general, there wasn't a lot out there. It was mostly heads down kind of building the business. Right. And it wasn't until 2018 that it started to have enough momentum that it, that it generated that kind of attention. And did you generate more press afterwards? After that, a, okay. a ton more, absolutely. Okay. I think all of that then led to some of the things like the Ernst & Young Award and the you know, Fast Company recognition. That is awesome. It was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was definitely one of those lifetime memory kinds of things. And just such a powerful piece, too, to, yeah. I think, for women and women of color in general, just to see, you know, that there, there was hope, but also how much further we have to go. Right. Too, right? It's so, true. Yeah. It's true. The, the, we want that to be, you know, 126 and then 526 right. mm-hmm. and keep getting that number bigger 10, and bigger. 1,026. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. And then for it not to be novel, right, for right. it not to feel like there's look at these women who have actually raised outside capital and how amazing is that, that that becomes a, a normalized kind of part of the entrepreneurial journey. That's the goal. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about another identity of yours as a mother. Yes. Most startup founders that I have heard of don't start their companies when their child, children is, their child <laughs> is two. With a two-year-old, right? yeah. So you started when, you were two, when he was two. Still not sure what I was thinking. And he's almost eight now, you said, right. is that right? Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, first of all, it let is. me just like hats off to you because you know I have a four-year-old and like I I have no idea how you did it, but good for you. I don't know either. So tell me a little bit about that identity mm-hmm. for you as a mother with a you know toddler and then a preschooler and then a you know right. elementary now school child. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about how that influenced you, and then the reverse, how right. it's influenced him, because you were telling us a little bit before the show about how his thoughts about his mom and what his mom can do and what that looks like and right. how he's involved. Yes, exactly. So interesting. So one of the things that I incorporated into the culture in building FS Card was was my identity in general. What I, what was important to me was part of building a place that I wanted to work. So for example, all of our social events at FS Card happened during the day. If we had a holiday party, it started with lunch. There would be some activities in the afternoon. It ends at five. And at five, just like any other day, you can go home and go get your children or, or go play soccer or whatever it is that you like to do. We did that during the day. If we had happy hour, happy hour started at like four and it ended at like 5.30. And, you know, and I made it a point to leave because if I left, it sent a signal to everyone else that you can stay or you can go, but you don't have to be there because I'm there. Because I've spent a lot of my time in my life, especially in corporate life, standing around in a bar, trying to figure out how long I have to stay before mm-hmm. I can actually just leave and go home, sure. right? What's gonna make it look like I've, I'm here, I've done enough, I've smiled in the boss's face. I don't wanna replicate that. I, don't need, I, I didn't wanna put other people in that position. Um, and it's, it was part of being family friendly, theoretically, although I didn't think of it as that, I just thought of it as what do I want, right? And, and what, do I, what do I need and enjoy? Um, the other thing is we welcomed people to bring their children to the office. So if there's an unexpected snow day or some, some need for your child to come with you, kids welcome in, in our office. I took advantage of that myself. And I've had meetings where my, my son was small, he sat on my lap while I was meeting with outside parties and meet, having executive conference calls, et cetera, and trying to keep him quiet, which did not always <laughs> work. Um, but 
it is a part of my life, right? right? And that is not something that I can always leave behind and, and check out the door every single time. And I wanted it to be a place where that was welcome. Um, the other thing that we did at the company was we, we actually had big Halloween celebrations. It was one of the things that we really sort of spent some time on. And so at Halloween, people would bring their kids. We would set up trick-or-treating stations at, at each office, and then the kids would have a little parade and walk around and trick-or-treat in the office. Right? And that's one of the fun kinds of things that we were able to do and build into the culture just because of being able to incorporate it. And it allowed the kids to come in and see the office and, and experience it. Um, the impact on my son was for him. So he's the boss's son. So he got a lot more, a lot more attention, a lot more equities <laughs> out of that, I think, so than, than even Good some of the him. other kids. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Good for him. He, Smart. Um, <laughs> you know, there was, there, people were always like, hey, let's go out. There's an ice cream store right down the street. Let's go get him some ice cream. He could go sit in anyone's office and they would, you know, entertain him happily. Um, he also started to get to know some of the language that I used about what I was doing in the, in the company. Um, and so he started to know the names of some of my business partners. So the, our banking partner, he knew that guy's first name. And so he would, he would pretend to call me and actually say, hey, it's Bill. Bill, yeah, Bill, do you have time to talk right now, et cetera? Because Bill was the name, the first name of my business partner. Oh, my And he would goodness. replicate that experience because I was constantly on the phone with Bill. Oh my if my God. phone rang, he would I say, love oh, it. is that Bill, right? Like, and he, he just started to, to get to know what my, um, you know, what my day-to-day interactions were like. Um, another one was with all the capital raising, so we've talked about how much pitching we did. Um, he knew about investors as mm -hmm. a concept. He didn't really know what an investor actually is, but he heard me talking all the time about, I have a call with an investor. I'm trying to find some investors. These investors are asking for this. We have to go through diligence with these investors. And so he knew that investors were important, and he knew mm -hmm. that they were important to me. And so when I did things that he did not like or that he thought I should get in trouble for doing them, he would say, I'm going to tell your investors, <laughs> and they are going to get you in trouble. <laughs> and it was just about the cutest thing I've ever heard. But he sort of was looking for authority over me in the way that I had authority Shit, over him. It was great. So it, I know but it took it, everything in you not to. Yes, to just, just bust out laughing. Probably had to say to you were mad. So I'm like, right. oh, this <laughs> say this to me. So, but you know, I also know that now he's asked questions about where did the business go, right? Where's the company? Where are those mm -hmm. people? Mm -hmm. oh, you know, the, the concept of a sale is still not quite as clear to him either. He can understand the sale of goods, and, but he can't understand like the sale of a business still seems kind of weird to him. Um, and I figured out that he actually had a plan for himself that he was going to work there, right? That this was, so he actually said, well, if it's gone, then where am I going to work, right? Oh, my god! <laughs> and again, it was, it was super cute. And I told him, like, well, you're going to have to get a job of your own. Or, <laughs> I like the or build your start own your own. Start your own. Right, start your own business. Yep. So, um, but, but talking about, about financial literacy, mm -hmm. how important for our kids to get to see that kind of mm -hmm. exactly. activity yeah. and learn that language to be able to understand how that works, even right. from a very young age. Yeah. And I just want to highlight what you said because I think probably one of your big successes was creating a place that made it possible for you to found yes. and do what you were doing, even as a mother with a young, very young, child, a young child, which is hugely like i mean you should get an award just for that I think. Oh, well thank <laughs> really. you that's generous of you so what's interesting unfortunately one of our uh, co-hosts could not be here who actually i mean she recruited she wanted you she's like zena <laughs> you gotta get marla blah you gotta get her in there I'm like, oh, okay you. all right so i'm starting to feel like you're my client now <laughs> 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 telling me you gotta get her in there unfortunately she couldn't join us mm -hmm because something came up with her daughter's uh, okay. field trip. And something that uh, Aurelia said when um, she sent us an email this morning stating that I can't go, my husband can, couldn't make it right. because of the field trip. And um, so I'm it. And I remember when um, Christine was on the phone with uh, Nyla last night, uh -huh. and she mentioned to know I'm going. And her voice, I mean, she just picked up. She was so happy. Uh -huh. You can hear in her voice she was so happy that she was coming. And then 
Aurelia made a comment this morning. Her email's like, hey, you know, our children come first, you Absolutely know? Absolutely right. Exactly. They yes. come first all the time. So right. that they'll, you know, you never know what your kids are listening or watching. Exactly. And I just, I commend your son. I mean, he was just paying attention to everything you're doing. Absolutely right. Yep. One of the... The, one of the things that they really take in is whether they are included in what right. you're doing, right? Yeah. And whether or not right. you are shifting things to to accommodate them. Mm -hmm. And so when I knew that I wasn't, I, I was either gonna have a very difficult time trying to cancel or move something around um, and demonstrate to him that I could bring him with me. I think that also made him feel like, okay, this is a good compromise. And then he started, of course, wanting to come to the office, right? And oh, find opportunities too. I love it. So one, another fun example, and it's an offshoot of what you were saying, um, was there was a snow day, and so on that snow day, I was like, well, I still actually need to go to the office. Mm -hmm. And so he came downstairs in a suit. He put on, a, he put on his nice pants, his like button-up shirt, and he put on his jacket, and he was in, in the middle of the snow. And so I, I asked him, I was like, have you ever seen me wear a suit to the office? Because we had a casual environment. We didn't wear suits. And he said, well, this is what you wear to work. And so I put on my suit. Wow. And so the two of us on a snow day, we were probably the only, maybe there was one other person in the office. There was no one downtown, right? The government was closed. Everything was quiet. But we put on our formal business attire and we went to the office on a snow day. I love that. Yep. I love that. And now that, that's an Instagram moment. <laughs> you just say Kodak. Have we have Kodak moment, that. but now these days it's Instagram. <laughs> but it is about integrating yes. them and letting them know that if, if necessary, you can either join them mm -hmm. or they can join you. Like right. It can go both directions. Yeah. And speaking of children, and you know, we had this conversation earlier, right before we got on air. Um, you know, we're, we're all concerned about the future. We're concerned about how, you know, everything, what we're doing, what, what, kind we're of doing, world we're building, yeah. what kind of world we're doing, everything's costing more, the cost of living's going up. You know, I have Amazon. I mean, it's literally down the street from me. And I remember Melissa um, Bradley said to me, I was like, uh, I said something to her, like, well, I couldn't get the press here because they're all over at the Amazon event. That was, uh -huh. that was the second oh, part of her yes. impact. Yeah. So it just so happened, it fell on the same exact same day oh, wow. as Arlington was having their meeting about Amazon. So oh. the press was invited to come okay. to that. So, okay. and she said, you better be careful because you know, you don't want to get moved out of there. And oh. I was thought, I never thought about it. Cause I was like, she's right. Cause yes. everything is going up. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I, I, I'm already seeing it. So what about the future? What is the financial implications, the impact? What are your thoughts? I mean, yeah. You, I know you can't tell me what's in your, you know, what you see in your crystal ball. Not that I believe in crystal <laughs> balls, but I mean, based on, you know, your sense, what, what's, what is coming down the pike? So a few things definitely concern me. Mm -hmm. One of the big ones, obviously, is the cost of education, yes. the student loan situation mm -hmm. that is an offshoot of that cost of education. Right. We've created a situation for people in this country that starts them off at the very, very early stages, especially the early stages of their professional lives, with a debt burden that is unprecedented. Right? We, mm -hmm. we are in uncharted water on what the impact of this is on our society. And I am concerned about that, the fact that we've already done that, and then the fact that this continues to accelerate. Right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this isn't stopping where it is now. It's, it's actually going up from here. Um, and at the same time, I, I sort of subscribe to the idea that not every, not every job out there requires that, that much education, um, but no one wants to take that risk, right? right. No one wants to be the, the, you know, they're not running the guinea pig test on me or on my kid or, you know, so maybe I think not everybody does, but my child does. Mm -hmm. And if every single person thinks that, which probably everyone does, we will continue down the same path. So what is going to interrupt that pattern? And that I don't have a good answer to. Wow. I'm really concerned about, about that. Another one, and, and these are ways in which things in our society have financial implications. Education is one. Mm -hmm. Another is health care. So we're in this situation where people are now using the health care system more, I think in, in light of the Affordable Care Act. Right. But when you go to the when you go to, to take, you know, to take go to the doctor or go to take care of something that needs to be taken care of the bills that start showing up at your house after you've been to a doctor, even if you have health care and you've paid your copay, et cetera, 
It's amazing. It right? is amazing. And, and you know, children. There was a, there was a, a case that I think got national attention about a little girl that I don't know. She fell down or broke her arm or something, and the parents ended up with like eleven thousand dollars worth of medical expenses mm-hmm. with insurance. Right. I mean, this is this is crazy. Right. And I I don't know how people can even possibly be equipped to deal with that. Right. You can't observe the prices in advance. You're generally in a crisis when you're it's going, on, you know, especially for an emergency medical procedure or, or medical help. So you are kind of price insensitive, right? Like whatever, just you know, just stop get the bleeding, right, right? Or, or reset my my arm. Um, and and so and then after the fact, you've already consumed it, and now you just start paying for things that that keep coming to your house. No, that's very true. Because um, I had a, uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I had an ankle. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I ended up twisting my ankle real badly. It was one of, it was called a um, high ankle sprain that mm. mostly like football players get. Right, yes. And it takes months, <laughs> months to heal. For that to heal, yeah. And um, so it started like in 2016 and ran into 2017. And um, I recall that, and also in 2018, I found out that I had to have surgery. And I remember, oh, wow. yeah, not on the ankle, but on something else. Oh, okay. So uh, I'm thinking to myself, like the doctor said, well, we can put it off for a month. You know, it was like in November when I found out. So it's sad when you have to start thinking, it's like, wait a minute, I have spent down my deductible. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is how, this is the time to right. get this surgery in. Do it in. this year. Do yes. it now. I was like, exactly. no, we're going to do this next month. And he's like, are you sure? You can wait. To-? No, 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 right. no, no. Cause I spent down my deductible and this surgery is going to cost a lot of money. Perfect illustration. Yeah. <laughs> and I want it done now. Right. And all because I was concerned about deductible cause I'm still paying bills on the ankle injury. You so were making financial decisions. Exactly. But that, versus a healthcare. But decision. a lot of people yeah. don't know that. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't realize, mm-hmm. you know. And the implications of mm-hmm. not doing it and putting it off and right. paying the next deductible and all. Yes. Right. That's. It is. It. We have set up a system that is very difficult for the for the average person in this country to navigate successfully. Mm-hmm. I would maybe even dare say impossible. Right. right. It is. It would be a full time job to manage your own healthcare if you if you really wanted to do it well and make informed decisions. Right. Um, and I, I have no idea where we are going with that. So those are, those are two examples of things that there are sort of big structural components of our society mm-hmm. that have major financial implications for, for people's life trajectory. And I feel like there needs to be an interruption in both of those two mm-hmm. trends, and I don't know what that interruption will be. And even though we can't solve healthcare education expenses today <laughs> I think part of what we have talked about is really important is for us to keep having discussion exactly right to keep yeah. talking about that keep to keep sharing with each other this is the this is what I'm thinking about for my kids or here's how I think about healthcare or like Zena just shared her story with regard to hey these are real issues that impact us across the board right yeah I mean we we you know making decisions about whether and so in in the DC area the emphasis on private school is, an, is a, you know, again, the, this offshoot of education, whether or not your children go to private school, uh, is an ongoing conversation. And uh, you know, we live in Tacoma Park. We live there deliberately because there's a fantastic mm-hmm. public school system. And this constant temptation about private school and the cash outlay associated with private school um, is another one of those things that, that feels like you can't solve it every single day, but you're constantly sort of battling, you know, grappling with it and trying to figure out what's the right choice. But I you know, strongly want there to be public education, and, and Nelson is in public school. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's good. It's nothing wrong with public education. I That's have right. one. Me too. <laughs> I did fine. Me too. Exactly. <laughs> Me too. Well, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, I know you sold your company. and So where I'm, can we I'm, find you now? <laughs> so I am taking what I'm calling my adult gap year. Okay. So I'm, I'm taking a year off and recovering a bit from, from all of the activity over the last five years. I am here in Washington, D.C. and can be reached on all of the usual channels. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, very easy to find on uh, on Twitter. I do tweet. I like I like Twitter actually. I'm not an Instagram user, not really a Facebook user, but I am out there on on all the usual channels, so people can find me. And is under your name? Under my name, Marlo exactly. J. Marla Marla Blow. Marla Blow. Yep. Okay, great. 
Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you. This was great. so much. This is great. So we had a very exciting uh, conversation. Very tough conversation, too, because a lot of people don't like to have it about finances uh -huh. and credit cards. And then we learned the definition of subprime um, communities mm -hmm. and how people sort of shy away from it. They don't want to discuss it. And uh, But we talked about how people are underbanked and underserved and Sometimes people fall into these in that community not by their own choice. Absolutely. And um, you know, I'm I'm excited that you know you took a chance and came in with this a credit card. You know, you saw opportunity, and it took me a minute to get it. And I think it's because of the fact that I didn't understand what the subprime meant. Mm, yeah. That subprime market, I didn't even really understand it. And I thank you for you know taking that opportunity. Mm -hmm. and creating something and you were able to make something of it and feel as if you contribute to the community and we got into entrepreneurship we talked about you know you gotta be resilient if you get knocked down seven times you need to get up eight times yep. you have to just you know roll with the punches and keep going and building your network how your network can help you is critical yeah. get through all of this you know hiring you know I love the fact that your first 12 hires were right. you know either you knew them personally or you knew someone else who knew them. knew them yep and um, I know everyone sort of uh, have issues with folks selling their businesses I think you sold too soon or you shouldn't have sold but I like the fact that you looked at it from an economical standpoint right and you said you know what I have to take the emotion out of this and I need to let this baby go right and I'm sure your baby's going to continue to grow. And then one day you're going to look up I and say, so. you know what? I created this and hopefully exactly. more come from it. And finally, you know, we're, we're all concerned about the future. And uh, I know the two biggest concerns you have about the student loans and also health care. Right. And uh, maybe somebody like you. I'm not saying you personally <laughs> to come in. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. I'm, no pressure. I'm on a sabbatical. <laughs> come in and help solve this healthcare market. Absolutely, please. It's it's tough. If, if, if there's another, if we get one more Marla Bowl out there to come and do this, hey, please do. Have at it. All right. Thank you. This is another episode of Get Found, Get Funny. Thank you for joining us. You know where to find us. We are on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook under our names. Um, Please, please, please don't miss the episode. And our website is getfoundgetfunded.com. And Marla, thank you again. This has thank been great. You. My pleasure. All right. Have a good afternoon. You too.